Well, good morning, church. So good to see each and every one of you. I'm so glad that you're here today. You know, I, I know, I know what you're thinking. It's cold outside. But I just want to remind you, it's springtime. It's, it's warm or it's cold. It's windy. And this is okay. It's not snowing. I remember my first year, 2008, I moved here from Hilton Head, South Carolina. Like, we didn't even have winter. Spring was like cold, and then it was summer by like late February, right? So I'm sitting in a presbytery meeting, true story, May 5th, my birthday, staring out the window, and it's snowing. So it could be worse. Amen? I hope that you'll walk outside today after this service and you're going to look around. You're going to see that green grass and those flowers and you're going to say thank you. Because it is so much better for your soul to say thank you than to complain. And there's so much to be thankful for. Amen? It's just warm enough. The crappies are biting. It's good. All right. We're going to return to our journey through the John's Gospel. And the cool thing about, you know, doing an expository journey is that when you're on the first day of the week, when you're on Easter, you just get to be there for a while. And this is our third Sunday of being on the first day of the week, the Resurrection Sunday. This is going to be our last day of a, of a resurrection encounter with Jesus. We just left Mary Magdalene. Remember last week, Mary had that private encounter with Jesus and the two angels because she had circled back to go back by herself. And it changed her life when Jesus called her name, changed everything. And so now... We're going to go to the evening of the first day, and we're going to hear about Jesus' appearance to the rest of the disciples. Now, John records this in significant detail, as does Luke. We, we have two of the gospel writers who give a very detailed description of this first appearance of Jesus to the disciples on the evening of the first day. So we're going to read both. That's okay with you? It doesn't matter. We're going to read both. But... But we're going to stand, we're going to read the Word of God. There's a lot of scripture today, but this is actually one of the most powerful things we do as a church, is the corporate public reading of scripture together. And so please read together out loud, beginning with John's account, John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any... It is withheld. Luke's gospel now, Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet 
And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Thank you. Please be seated. That's a lot of scripture. Thanks for bearing with me. And I want to welcome our online community who's worshiping with us today too. This is such a powerful, powerful scene, and it deserves our attention from both gospel writers. Uh, my, my message today is just entitled The Scent Community. It's always just four subheadings, but no longer of a sermon. Uh, the first day finale co-missioning, mission resources, mission authority. First, uh, the first day finale. We've been talking about this Sunday, Easter Sunday, as the first day. That's the way it's described in scriptures on the first day of the week. Now, if you look at all four gospel accounts, I know many of you probably thought, yeah, well, you have all these different accounts. So I'm just going to lay out a rough timeline. When you take all four gospels into account, here's kind of a rough timeline of the first day. Right, So sometime close to 6 a.m., the women depart for and arrive at Joseph's tomb. We see that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all agree on that. Seeing that the stoners roll away, John recalls that Mary Magdalene immediately runs back to fetch Peter and John, informing them that someone has moved the Lord's body. Next, the remaining women have an encounter with angels at the tomb that say he's risen, just as he said, and they are charged to tell the disciples what they've seen and heard. The women then depart to find the disciples. Having been contacted by Magdalene, then Peter and John run to the tomb to investigate and discover that Jesus is missing. John believes a miracle has taken place, and then Peter and John return to their place of lodging. Mary Magdalene then comes alone to the tomb and encounters two angels, and then Jesus himself. We saw that last week. And Jesus instructs Mary to find the disciples and communicate a message to them. The other women also encountered Jesus briefly on the way to inform the disciples. We see that in Matthew 28. Then in Luke 24, we learn that Mary Magdalene and the other women find the disciples gathered together and report what they saw and heard to the eleven. But the disciples do not believe their testimony. Peter then goes back to inspect the tomb according to Luke 24:12, And then in, later in Luke 24, we learn that two other disciples encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They then run back seven miles to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what they saw and heard. And the disciples are rejoicing that Jesus appeared to Simon. And that's what we read in Luke 24, 13 through 35. So that's kind of the events of the day. Starting from early in the morning, there are accounts. There's multiple stories now, particularly from the women who claim they have actually seen Jesus alive. And what we learn uh, in Luke's setup of of this is that the the 11 they minus thomas and the others with them were talking about these things 
John says it was on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Now, we need to go to the room. I want you just in your imaginations to come with me. We're going to step into this probably the same upper room where Jesus shared his last meal with the disciples. And I just want you to picture this in your mind. What's going on there? What are you, what, what, what are you hearing? This is always what you do when you read scripture. This happened. You go back. You imagine the picture in your mind. Here, in my mind, I picture the women are sitting here and the men are over there. Let's start with the women. Imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister Shalom, Joanna, Mary Magdalene, and multiple other women. They're sitting over here, and their tears and their faces are flushed because several of these women have seen Jesus on this day. They are not in doubt. They encountered angels. They saw Jesus. They are beside themselves. They don't even know what to make of it. They're, they're processing together. But when they look over at the men you will also see an expression of hurt and frustration. Why? Because the male counterparts do not believe their testimony. This is literally what we read in Luke 24:11, that these Middle Eastern men considered their testimony an idle tale. You can cut that tension with a knife. Now imagine the men. And you must look upon their faces because their faces are full of fear. The scriptures say that they were meeting behind locked doors. This rumor of an empty tomb is not going to end well for them. They expect the Roman guard to be coming after them. The, the, the Sanhedrin and, and, and their, their people are going to be coming after them. They're going to get blamed for stealing the body. They have no idea where the body is. And literally John uses the same exact words. For due to their fear of the Jews. He used those exact words to describe Joseph of Arimathea and why he was a secret disciple. And we even get the picture here that the disciples are relapsing. They're afraid to be publicly associated with Jesus for fear of the Jews. They're meeting behind locked doors. Can you see it? The tension in the room. Can you feel that? Now, let me just pause one more time. I promise not to beat a dead horse, but this is just, you cannot miss this. All four gospel accounts are very consistent. The women were courageous. The men were cowards. The women saw the angels. The men did not. The women encountered the risen Jesus first. The the male disciples met him later. If you are an ancient Middle Eastern person and you're writing myth and legend, you would never make that up because this shames the men in an honor culture. It shames the apostles, like the people who are going to be famous in the church, Peter and John and James and so on. It's just embarrassing. And so again, if you're a skeptic here today, this is the kind of evidence that very intelligent people familiar with antiquity, familiar with myths and legends say this isn't myth or legend. The only reason these kind of details would be in here is if it actually happened exactly this way. It's just too embarrassing for it to be myth and legend. Now, those of us who, you know, we're 2,000 years later, we see the fierce faithfulness of women within the church. Are we surprised by this? No. 
But in the Middle Ancient world, this was scandalous and really points to the authenticity, the historical authenticity of the gospel accounts. All right, now returning to the account that evening, both Luke and John agree that Jesus makes his first day finale appearance that evening when he suddenly appears in their midst, even though the doors were locked. He doesn't knock. He's just there. And the disciples recoil in shock immediately, as you, you probably would as well. They don't even know what to believe. Some believe it's a ghost or a spirit. By the way, this was very common in the ancient mindset that when people died, they would come back to haunt you. And so there's probably some of these guys who came from different traditions at some point, or, or that was one of their local myths that they kind of secretly believed. And so when Jesus, or what looks like Jesus, shows up in their room, and the doors were locked, they're admittedly freaked out. And so Jesus, you know, the first thing he says is, Shalom, peace be with you, the peace of God be with you. They're like, right. <laughs> and he says, no, look, it's me. See my hands and my feet and my side. And some were still disbelieving and, and in doubt. And so Jesus said, you have something to eat. And they watched him as he ate fish which I think biblically tells us that when we die and go to heaven, there will be a fish fry awaiting us. <laughs> Jesus, disciples, it's biblical. Now notice Jesus has risen from the grave with a real body, but it is a different kind of body. Jesus says, flesh and bone, touch me, feel me, watch, I'm eating fish. Spirits, disembodied souls don't do that. I don't know what you think about what your existence is going to be. You know, many of us as we get older, like, I'm going to shed this body and get out of this pain. I know I cannot wait. I have tinnitus. I have a constant ringing in my left ear. I know I'll be with Jesus when that stops, right? There's a desire to be released free from the body. And so many of us think that we're going to be maybe, you know, kind of this disembodied spirit. That's not what we see in the text. When Jesus resurrects from the dead, he has a body, but it's a different kind of body. You know, when Jesus first takes on flesh, the incarnate Christ, he doesn't walk through doors. He's limited to time and space and hunger and pain and everything just as, as we all are. When he is resurrected, he has a body, a different kind of body. Now, locked doors are not an issue. Jesus can be with Mary and then very shortly after be in front of the other women and then shortly after be seven miles away in Emmaus and then shortly after be in the upper room having not knocked on any door just he's just there and so it's different but it's still a body and really as you look at what the scripture says paul talks around this and to it to some degree being still on this side of the grave first corinthians fifteen fifty, he says the, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must be must put on immortality and I think that's a very good way to describe what we actually see in Jesus. He no longer has a perishable body. He has an imperishable body. It's not a body that's limited to mortality. It's an immortal body, but it's a body nonetheless. Because the picture of creation of human beings in God's image is spirit and body. These two things always are together. They're not separate. That's a different religion, a different philosophy of being, if you will. Okay? So keep that in mind. And be encouraged by that. Now, as we return to the upper room and we witness the sudden appearance of Jesus in the midst of the disciples, I hope you're there. Your imaginations are taking you to this place. All the tension, 
all the fear and sadness and despair, especially for the middle disciples, all the initial like excitement and anticipation, but not sure what to make of it from the women. And then suddenly Jesus is there. Your, your Lord, your teacher, your rabbi, your best friend, the person who loved you like no one has ever loved you, and you thought he was dead, and now he's alive in your presence. How does that make you feel? You know, I don't think words can really capture the emotional intensity of this moment, but I would like to simply reflect that I think John's words really stink at capturing the intentional emotion. Is there more understated verse anywhere in the Bible than John 20 verse 20 where he writes then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord they were glad glad like is that the best that we can do here right they were glad well the Greek word can be and probably should be you know translated rejoice the disciples rejoice when they saw the Lord but it is clearly understated is it not I mean, you would think there'd be like, and they danced and hugged and cried and laughed. And, and it was like just great rejoicing. But we don't find that. And I think it's there for a reason. This understated description embarrassingly captures the fact that even though Jesus was standing in the room with them, not everybody believed at once. Not everyone could wrap their minds around it like they have you ever had somebody that you love, like you really love, and they move? And you know that they're going to move. And so like you were grieving their absence even before they're absent. And then they finally leave. Or you thought they left. And then you run into them someplace. You're like, why are you still here? Because when you've actually grieved somebody's absence, you're not prepared for them suddenly to be back. And I think there was a, some of that real emotional, like, I... I saw you die. I'm not believing it's really you. And and if it is you, then why'd you put us through all that? I mean, you know, like there's emotional tension that's not necessarily immediately resolved. And I think that accounts for some of the under... And you'll see that later in other post-resurrection experiences where they they saw Jesus, but some doubted. Uh, That's just real. And I I love that it's in there. I think we could linger longer in in just this first day finale, but I need to move on. Let me look to my second subheading, co-missioning. First notice that that Jesus says the same greeting twice. Right when he appears, he says, shalom. That's a typical Jewish greeting, which would mean peace be with you or peace be upon you, right? And, And then he says it again. Now, whenever we see repetition in the new testament what does it mean church i've not taught you anything in 14 years it means emphasis right anytime you see repetition means emphasis and it's not a small thing he says shalom then he shows them hands and feet eats the fish he says it again what does that mean so uh new testament scholar william barclay says shalom means may god give you every good thing When he reappears from the grave, the very first thing he says, may God give you every good thing. And when they're all, you know, in a tizzy and he he proves who he is, he says, now that I have your attention, may God give you every good thing. New Testament scholar Bruce Milne makes this reflection very brilliant. He says, 
Jesus' use of this greeting on that Easter evening represented the first truly authentic bestowal of shalom in the history of the world. Precisely because he has brought the kingdom of God into realization by his death and rising, now and only now is shalom a a realizable blessing. You hear what he's saying? You know what I mean? People have been saying shalom to each other for a thousand years within the Jewish community, but it was really, to some degree, kind of a wishful thinking. You know, may God give you every good blessing, but we know you're going to die. And we know that's kind of the end. May God give you every good blessing, but life is really hard and painful and pretty disappointing. And, but, you know, I hope it gets better. May God, you know, shalom. But when Jesus conquers the grave and shows up in your deepest, darkest place of despair and hopelessness, and he says, may God give you every one of his good blessings in me. It's a whole new ball game. And that's exactly what Milner said. And I think this is, it took years and years for the church to put words to this. But I, I think of Romans 8.1 where Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Shalom. Right? It is the very goodness of God. You have been reconciled with God. There's no more condemnation. It's truly remarkable. Shalom, church. It's appropriate for us to use that term. The peace of God. So returning to the text, Jesus has this important message to communicate. He does start with the blessing. May God grant you every good thing. Peace be with you. Shalom. And then he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Uh, I'm going to make three observations about this commissioning, co-missioning. The sent identity, the sent work, the sent cost. Notice, first of all, that Jesus is identified by his mission. He says, as the Father sent me. If you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of John over and over again, Jesus refers to himself as the sent one. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he did what? He sent his son. So Jesus is defined by his mission. And he says, as I am defined by my mission, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. What does that make you, church? That makes you the sent community. This is our identity. This is what apostolic means, by the way. It means the sent. We are the sent. The sent community. That's our identity. Just as Jesus' identity was the one sent by the Father. It's incredibly important. Now, being sent means that we have to be obedient. That's what we see in Jesus. Philippians 2.8, Paul writes, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to save the world, to be a physician for the sick, a shepherd for the lost sheep, a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. He said, so as I was sent to do all those things, so I am sending you to be obedient, to do my work. That's your identity. You're the sent community, which leads us to the work. Uh, What is the work of the sent community? It is exactly the same work of, of the sent one, right? We are the body of Christ, his hands and feet. Uh, Alexander McLaren captures this beautifully. He says, we are to reproduce his attitude towards God and the world. He was sent to be the light of the world. 
and so are we. He was sent to seek and save that which was lost, so are we. He was sent not to do his own will, but the will of the Father that sent him, so are we. He took upon himself all cheerfulness, the office to which he was appointed, and said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work, and that must be our voice too. He was sent to pity, to look upon the multitudes with compassion, to carry to them the healing of his touch and the sympathy of his heart, so must we. We are the representatives of Jesus Christ. And if I might dare to use such a phrase, he is to be incarnated again in the hearts and manifested again in the lives of his servants, the church. Listen, this is a beautiful picture. Many weak eyes that would be dazzled and hurt if they were to gaze on the sun may look at the clouds cradled by its side and died with its luster and learn something of the radiance and the glory of the illuminating light from the illuminated vapor. Show them this picture. Look, this is what he just described right here. You see it? We, we all know this is true. Like We really cannot look directly upon the sun. It actually hurts us to do so. But we see the power and the majesty of that sun in the way that illuminates those clouds. And this is the picture of the church. The sent community bears witness to the sent one in the way that we are lit up and made beautiful by his presence in us. We will never be the sun. But my prayer is that his illumination of our cloudy disposition so captures the sad eyes of this perishing generation that they will see his brilliance in and around us and be drawn to his everlasting light. That's the picture. To be the light of Christ. Amen. Now this will come at a cost. It's not insignificant that when Jesus appears amongst the disciples and he wants to validate his, his identity as the sent one in front of these people who can't believe that he's there, can't believe that he's alive, can't believe that he's the son of God because we watched you die on the cross and none like you're standing right here. What does he point to? He points to his scars. He points to the, the scars of the cross because that is how he is identified as the sent one church. If we are the sent community, we are also going to carry some wounds and some scars. It is exactly what Jesus said if you're going to be his disciple. Let me ask you a question. What scars have you to show for your obedience to Jesus? It's not a bragging, right? I'm not asking you to brag about something. I'm just asking you, can you point to something? Can you point to some wounds, some scars that you carry because of your obedience to Jesus? And sitting through my long sermon is not one of them. You can't use going to church as one of your scars. Church, that No, this is a privilege. We get to worship together. Your scars are going to happen out there. Sadly, sometimes they do happen within the church. That Jesus said, you know, there's a cost to discipleship. Go back, read Luke 14, 25 through 33. Literally, it's the subheading in your Bible, the cost of discipleship. But in that text, verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We will be recognized and known, not just by the way that the sun lights up our cloudy disposition, but when you draw close to a disciple of Christ, you're going to find some wounds. There's going to be some scars. 
because it's costly out there. And here's the deal. If the church will not endure hardships, we will not accomplish our mission. It's not really about you and your comfort, is it? It's not about me and my comfort. It's about us being the light of Christ, and it comes with a cost. And we need to count that cost and anticipate it. But all of our suffering will be redeemed for the mission. But it's a battle. We have an enemy who hates us, and we're out there contending for souls. So you have to know going in. Just like Jesus, we're going to have some scars. That's part of it. Now, we've looked at our, our son identity and, and uh, you know, our sent work, the sent cost. Now, let's look at mission resources. Because Jesus isn't going to send us out there, commission us to go out and to do his work without giving us the resources we need to accomplish it. Three resources that are within the text. First, Jesus himself is with us. You know, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, as he's about to ascend to the Father, he says, All authority... Every last bit of it on heaven and earth has been given to me. So you go, therefore, and you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, to obey everything I've commanded. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I know for many of us, we're like such like seen as believing people who are like, yeah, well, that'd be nice. If you just show up, Stand in our presence like you did that night and let us touch him and see his scars and watch him eat some fish. I cooked some really smoked trout last night. He would have liked it. Right? We all wish we had that experience to see Jesus in the flesh. Then we would believe, really? It's going to take a degree of faith to believe in the one who rose again from the dead. But we believe in the promises of Scripture the testimony of the first church of the disciples, he is alive, they touched him, they saw him, and he made a promise that he is with us always. You will not go anywhere, anytime, for the rest of your life, any hospital room, any dark, deep place of depression, you will not go anywhere where Christ is not with you. May that be of great encouragement, church. You do not fight this battle alone. Our Lord has gone before you. Amen? And very akin to that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. In our text in verse 22, after giving the commission, John remembers, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the power of the church. This is the means by which we can accomplish this mission. But I just want you to see the picture of Jesus breathing on them. This goes all the way back to the creation story in Genesis 2. When God formed humans and made them in his image. And where did the life come? God breathed life into them. Remember Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10. And, and he, you know, the Holy Spirit asked the prophet, what do you see? He says, I see all these dry bones. And then the Spirit of God breathes new life and they come back to life. And here we have the disciples depressed and hopeless and faithless and falling into despair. And Jesus breathes new life into them. He breathes upon them the Holy Spirit. Now, I know for some of you, it's like, well, wait a second. I thought the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And like, this has been Pentecost. And how does this work? Well, I, I think the, the picture and the power of this is captured in Luke's account. Because it's how the Holy Spirit is going to open up their hearts to understand the Scripture. And that's going to fill in the blank. And that leads us to our third resource, the scriptures. 
in Luke 24, 45, the way he describes this is then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This compliments and he breathed upon them the Holy Spirit. You should always equate these two things that go hand in hand. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is risen from the dead. They've heard about the empty tomb. They don't really buy it. They're very grieved and despaired. He walks beside them and he says, hey, did not this have to happen? And then he opened their mind to the scriptures. Now, their testimony after Jesus disappeared from the side was, did our hearts not burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? The Holy Spirit is always associated with fire burning. Now, like that's the language of the Holy Spirit. You know, I had a young man walk up to me last week after the end of the service, and he was just undone. He's probably a 28-year-old young man. He was just in tears. He just clung to me. He was like, I get it. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit burns within us, opens our minds to the scriptures. And if you've ever had that experience, when it, so you, it clicks and you get it, your heart is burned within you. And you feel like every word of that sermon or every word of the scripture, or every word of that song is speaking directly to you. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this, I think, is what happened that night. When they were so faithless and hopeless and they didn't get it, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit at this time was to open their minds to the scripture. This is not yet the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But I'd like to point something out. Jesus said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's an imperative command. Take it. Grasp it. Reach out for it. Claim it. It is given to us by Jesus. We have to take it. We have to receive it. Can I make a horrible analogy? I beg for your forgiveness in advance. I'm a hopeless one-track mind person. But there's a really big, huge difference between owning a boat and using a boat. How many of you know somebody who owns a boat and they never use it? It drives me crazy. It's like most people, they're boat owners, they never use their boat, which makes them a hazard when they do. All right? This is kind of the picture. You know, like as Christians, we know, we have been told, we've read the Bible, that if we repent of our sins and we receive Christ, that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And like, yeah, I got it. It's a... It's out in my garage someplace. I hadn't really, you know. What? You've not received it. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is not a trinket. It's a person. It's the third person of the Trinity. And any person means cultivating a relationship, inviting, receiving into your home, into your life, into your thoughts, into your conversation. And it's in the means of this receiving the Holy Spirit. That we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, our minds are open to Scripture, we're empowered with the boldness to be obedient, even though, like, obedience wouldn't even be a thought for us. But it's, it's receiving the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely a powerful thing. Now, there's completely different settings on this night of the first day and Pentecost. You see the difference, right? Because on this night, they weren't expecting the Lord. They weren't waiting on the Lord. They were in despair. They were hopeless. And so when he, a little breath of the Holy Spirit is all they can manage. It's just enough to turn their minds, to open the scripture, to go from unbelieving to believing. But 50 days later, what are the disciples doing? 
They're gathered in the upper room, and they're all of one accord, and they are praying. And they're waiting on the Lord, and they are anticipating. And if you go back and study revival history, this has been this narrative every single time. That within a region, within a city, within a particular area, the believers began to pray. And they prayed and fasted and waited on the Lord for days, for weeks, for months, sometimes for years. And there was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it moved across the land. You want to see great outpouring of the Holy Spirit collectively in a city, in a community. It'll be always associated with this time of focused, concentrated prayer. And that's exactly what we see at Pentecost. That's a different situation. All right, let me now uh, just finish with this on this point. Should we fail to receive the Holy Spirit, our mission is lost before it ever began. That's how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit. So let's ask and let's receive. Amen. Last mission authority. Jesus says something very interesting and initially a bit difficult to understand here at the end of our text. Verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does that mean? I can tell you that that verse has been abused by church authorities in the past. And so we have to talk about this because it is not immediately self-evident. The first thing that comes to mind is the story of the paralytic. When he's lowered, remember, the paralytic's lowered through and, and everyone expects Jesus just to heal the guy. And Jesus says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. And people are like, nobody can forgive sins but God. He says, why are you surprised? I have authority to forgive sins. And it appears at this moment of this commissioning, as we're called to do the same things that Jesus did, that he has given us the authority to forgive sins or not. So this picture might feel like we're like, we have the power to forgive somebody's sins like Jesus did, or we have the power to say, I'm not going to forgive your sins. Like, I'm going to withhold it. I, I don't think that's exactly it. As you, it. A, the Greek is difficult to translate on here, but I think most commentators, and I agree with this, feel that, that really the point here, it's about the authority to preach the gospel. In other words, Jesus is commissioning the sent community to preach the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And this is what Luke 24 helps us to understand, verses 46 and 48. Jesus says in this commissioning time, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus has given his disciples the authority to preach the gospel with the assurance that when they proclaim the gospel, those who repent and call upon his name to be saved, we have the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. You are saved. You are adopted. You are part of the body of Christ. When you die, you will go to heaven because Christ has saved you. Thanks be to God. I have the authority now to say that. You have the authority to say that out there in the world as the gospel is proclaimed and we see people repent and call upon the name of Jesus. And here's the biggest thing about that is that church, so many people don't, they believe in Jesus, they don't believe that they'll be saved because they know they're bad people and they've done really horrible things and they just have such a hard time believing 
that Christ will receive them. This is why the authority has been granted to the church, the sent community, on his behalf. Tell them, with authority, your sins are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are reconciled to God. You are adopted as family. You are saved. And you need to fear no more. We have authority. Now, at the very same time, if I preach this gospel today and I lift up Jesus Christ before you as a singular atonement for your sins and you turn away and you refuse to repent and you refuse to kneel before King Jesus and you will not call upon his name to be saved, I have the authority and the mandate to tell you, you remain in your sin. You remain in your sin. And if you will not repent, then you will simply get what you deserve. When you breathe your last, you will stand before God and you will be judged and you will be sentenced according to God's justice. I have the authority to tell you that. And I think this is very much what Jesus just said. In his commissioning, preach the gospel, preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. If people repent, tell them, declare to them, you are forgiven. If they don't, tell them, declare to them, you remain in your sin. Now, I know as we close, some of you are like, well, I'm glad you do that, preacher, because I'm not going to do it. Uh, It's way too intimidating. I could never, I just, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel like I could actually say that to somebody. And I just want you to know, well, yeah, everybody feels that way. I feel that way every single Sunday morning. Every single Sunday morning, I wake up thinking, who the heck am I to stand up here and tell people about Jesus when I'm a slug? Of course you feel that way. You should feel that way. In fact, Alexander McLaren gives you some pretty comforting words. Let me share. <laughs> he says, I suppose no man has ever tried honestly to be what Christ wished him to be amidst his fellows, whether as preacher or teacher or guide in any fashion, who has not hundreds of times clasped his hands in all but despair and said, who is sufficient for these things? That's my every day. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. McLaren says, That is the temper into which the power will come. The rivers run in the valleys. And it is the the lowly sense of our own unfitness for the task, which yet presses upon us and imperatively demands to be done, that makes us capable of receiving that divine gift. It is for lack of this kind of humility that so much of so-called Christian effort comes to nothing. I want that to be an encouragement to you. You should be humble. 100%. You are unworthy, if you will. This is above all of us. Nobody is sufficient to the task. He makes us sufficient. It's the presence and dwelling of his Holy Spirit that empowers us to be obedient, that gives us the words to say at just the right moment with the right spirit of humility so people don't think that we're trying to, you know, knock them over or make ourselves better than them. They need to see your humility. That's the only way Christian ministry is affected, by the way. So you'll feel insufficient for the rest of your life. Get used to it. But when you receive the Holy Spirit, He will empower you to do things you didn't even know were possible. He will give you the words. He will give you a boldness. 
Your heart's going to be pounding out of your chest, but you will be obedient because he will empower you to be obedient and you will shine like those clouds and those people will see the radiating light of Christ in you and they will be drawn to him. We are the sent community. It's not optional. So go. Make disciples. Teach them to obey everything that he commanded. And remember, Christ is with you always. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? As the Father sent me, you said, even so I am sending you. Sending me. Sending all of us as your church. Lord, we feel so insufficient to the task. Yet we know that you have spoken the truth. That even as you were sent, so are we. Even as you suffered, we are to endure. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We receive him in this room, in this church, for this hour in history. That we might have a boldness and an obedience and a compassion and a love for the lost. That we would step out with the authority that you gave us to proclaim the gospel, to call people to repent, to place their faith in Christ. And to declare the forgiveness of sins. Even as we sadly declare the consequence that awaits those who will not repent. Give us boldness through your spirit to be your faithful church. To be the sent community. And I pray this in Jesus name and all the church said, Amen.